It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Right, so here we are. We're fighting to keep America uncanceled. Sandy Rio is coming to you live from CPAC uh, at the Anato Hotel in uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, it's like a parade of uh, wonderful people walking along here. And one of them is Senator Marsha Blackburn. Who, uh, to, oh, shall we tell them what happened to you? You got to be up on stage one in about two hours and you just broke the heel. The heel on of your my shoe. shoe just broke. I think I stepped into a little <laughs> crevice or something. And now it's like wardrobe disaster. You know, we're trying to figure out how to fix the heel on my shoe or get another shoe. It's so you know, funny. Years ago when I was in Chicago and I was a singer, um, I got called to do some something downtown and uh, singing on, on ca- yeah. camera. And I got, I hurried and I got all ready and I had this beautiful like b- butterfly sparkly top. And I was driving into the city and I was like, 15 minutes from downtown when I realized I had on blue jeans and had forgotten to bring my skirt. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a full camera. This is not Zoom where you can sit down, you know. And so I remember running to, uh, I think it was Lord and Taylor or Marshall Field Field probably, and with my car just outside, you know, because I had to be there. And just frantically going into the black, I need a black skirt, I need a, and so the lady, I said, I don't have time to try it on, just give me this, you know, this is the size. So she gave me like, uh, she did, she gave me a black skirt and that's what I ended up wearing. And But you know, the irony of it is, uh, they, they let me take that skirt back. Oh I mean, I told goodness. them what happened. I mean, I yeah. told them, and they, they said, no, they let me take it back. I wore it one time. But that's what you need. You need someone to run get you a nice, gold, beautiful shoe, like right. your shoe. <laughs> yes, and so we'll have to figure this out before I go on stage. Or I may be going on stage barefoot. <laughs> I've done that, too. I have done that, too. I've been performing and took my shoes off. So, you know, it, it's all possible. So, yes. I, I know this is probably the most unusual beginning to a show I've ever done, but... Uh, it's nice to see you. And I'm delighted to join you again. So appreciate having your voice out there in the great work that you do for you. conservative causes. Thank you. So you're going to be speaking. What are you going to be speaking about? Uh, I'm going to do about 15 minutes on China. Okay. And the issues that we have with yes. China. Because, you know, if when you talk about young adults, this is the defining issue for them. China is intent on being globally dominant by the time we get to the middle of the century. And think about all the millennials and young people walking around now. This is the impact on them. If we're not careful, our children and grandchildren will be working for the Chinese. Well, that's what the Chinese have in mind. It is what they have in mind. I thought that the latest speech by Xi Jinping was pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, to say... He he was not... If you bully China, you are going to face broken heads and bloodshed. He was very specific. Yeah, they're getting very bold. And, you know, what, building up uh, troops right on the Indian border. 
Yes, they're building up their troops. Their military aggression is of concern. The Blue Water Navy that they are building, the South China Sea, what they've done, the Belt and Road Initiative, where they're going into places like Djibouti, and they put in a port, and the next thing you know, they have put in a military base with that port. I don't need to tell you that the body in which you serve, the Senate, um, we've had decades of becoming China-friendly. Yeah, you know, and I remember when it started when Nixon was the first one to, to you know open up China after all those years of closure, and then there was this all those decades of free trade, free trade, free trade, like it was like a um, one of the commandments, and Republicans became the you know the barkers of free trade, and I think it has come back to bite us terribly. They kept yeah. saying to us, you know, that China would. Uh, if we did trade with them, then they would. We would have mutual interests, and that would, uh, you know, their aggression would right. dial down. But that's that has, that has not happened. They've swallowed us. Well, and what is happening is you have corporations that are acting like their own team, China, and not that's team right. USA. And uh, this is of tremendous concern to me because we need corporations to help hold China accountable. Look at the genocide they're carrying out on the Uyghur Muslims, trying to annihilate these people. Look at what they're doing to the Mongolians, the Tibetans, what they've done to the Hong Kong freedom fighters. We cannot let this stand. No, Falun Gong, the, the organ, organ uh, transplant, har- right. organ harvesting, all of it. it it's just, it's horrific. I, I don't know, it's like, but, but it seems to me that Washington is asleep at the wheel. I. I don't see any real movement. I don't see anything. I see blah, 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 talk, talk, talk. But the economic interests are still so hard and fast that no one seems to really be willing to take a hard look at the abject danger that we're in. Not only, it's not only uh, militarily, but it's also, it's it's the whole hate speech codes. It's it's bringing the social score here, uh, meaning keeping tabs on everyone so that we don't have any freedoms. Yeah. Uh, who who in uh, the Republican caucus in the Senate understands this besides you? There are there are conservatives. I think a lot of us understand that China is a problem and has to be dealt with. And certainly President Trump did a he did things that no one before him has been able to do in holding China to account in pushing for better trade deals, in pushing against China, manipulating their currency, in uh, holding them accountable for the COVID-19, in pushing on them about their military aggression and their use of Huawei as spy technology. But he's not there, so... He isn't, but, but we he got, showed we got Mitch, us we what have, can happen. We have Mitch McConnell in leadership. His wife has huge holdings in China. And uh, that, that's a huge problem. Uh, it seems to me that I have not seen it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't seen Mitch McConnell take any hard stand against China. Leader McConnell has taken some stands against China. And people like me that are pushing back on China and are pushing to hold them to account, he's been supportive of those efforts. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's good to hear. I'd, I'd like to see more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what else are you working on? Well, we are, of course, continuing our work against big tech. We're also doing plenty of work to uh, defend life 
we are pushing back on some of this critical race theory that's being taught in our schools. And of course, I've worked for years on uh, border issues and trying to secure our southern border and build a wall and uh, force the federal government to work with our cities and states because with drug trafficking, sex trafficking, human trafficking, every state's a border state, every town's a border town. And, you know, with big tech, our virtual youth protection agenda, we are pushing for that to make certain that um, we, we allow individuals to protect their virtual youth their information online and once you put privacy online privacy in place and take away information from big tech you force them to reshape their their business model but do you have any democrats that are trying to help you do that we do have some democrats that are interested in online privacy and data security and even in some section 230 reforms yeah so that's a that's another issue yeah. Where, where do you stand on the Section 230 and also on the antitrust approach of punishing uh, uh, social yeah, media Yeah, Sandy, companies? all of that is part of my virtual youth protection agenda. The first thing you have to do is privacy because that, when you allow the online consumer, you and I, to tell big tech, we will opt in if we want you to share our sensitive information. But unless we give you that explicit consent, you cannot share or capture or hold our information. And then for non-sensitive information, like your, your, uh, your, what you are going in and searching, you can opt out. Well, that forces big tech, who builds their value on the number of eyeballs they capture every day, to reshape their business model because they are not capturing that data and it remains with you but they can't boot you off their platform if you say you can't have access to my data so you get that protection in there and then their valuation goes down so this is I'm assuming this is the form of legislation that you're yes, pushing. Yes, it is. And so where where are you with that in terms of momentum? We're working on that. I am the ranking Republican on the Data Security Consumer Protection Committee. And online privacy and data security are issues that we're dealing with right now. What's it like to be in the Senate right now? Uh, you know, uh, there are some of us that work on issues like the online privacy issues in a bipartisan basis. And we're... There are some who are very confrontational. They're pushing that leftist agenda, and we just have to fight back. So what do you think is going to happen with this uh, John Lewis voter rights bill? Which is like the, okay, just to be clear, my understanding is that the left wants to take the, the voter rights bill of John Lewis and like put it in pieces and basically pass SR1 through the John... Well, what they're trying to do... if you oppose it. They are, they're trying to federalize elections and giving the federal government control over all of your local That's elections. Right. And so we have to realize that is their goal, regardless of what they say. They have tried this in many shapes and forms for the past 20 years to let the federal government be in charge of elections and take that right away. And it's a constitutional right that is given to the state legislatures. So we're just saying, no, you're going to continue to try this in many shapes and forms, and we're going to continue to stand against it.
I was concerned when I saw uh, an article, I think it was in The Hill yesterday or two days ago, that Leader McConnell said something to the effect that he was not going to oppose Joe Biden on everything, just on some things. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. you think that's okay, that he doesn't want to fight everything, just a few things? If President Biden is going to do something that is going to preserve freedom, as I say, I've got five, five big things I fight for every day. Faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. When he and I are in agreement on that, then those are things that you can support if they're going to preserve faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. If they are things that are going to erode the rights for our families, faith, freedom, hope, and opportunity, I'm going to fight against it. Have you found anything that he's supporting in those categories at all? He has expressed a desire to bring some of our manufacturing back from China, and I would be happy to work with him on bringing our manufacturing back from China. Well, that's one thing. Okay, I'll put that in the one thing column. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so um, I guess one thing I want to express to you personally, uh, this is me telling, this is me expressing my concerns. I talk a great deal about January 6th. Because I have a lot of listeners who were there supporting the president. A lot of innocent people have been swept up, arrested, held without bail, uh, treated in the most atrocious ways in the D.C. jail. Uh, Such bad water, they have to run it through their socks because they can't drink it, beaten by the guards. I am appalled at what's happening, and I'm appalled at the silence of Senate and the House. And there are exceptions. Ron Johnson is an exception. And um, I would just like to encourage more of you to take that on. I recognize that January 6th was frightening for some people, but I think you don't know the whole, I don't mean you, I don't know what you know about it, we haven't talked about it. But in general, I think Senate doesn't really understand that that's a much more complex story than you're seeing on CNN. There's just a lot more. And there's the music with no time for you to respond. It quickly, if you can. You know, Sandy, uh, January 6th is one of those days we had hoped would be a day. Of course, the 10 of us had filed our objection, and we were pushing to get this focus on election integrity and an audit of the election. We were so disappointed, so disappointed we didn't get to that point. It was a disaster. It really was. But uh, we think it was a disaster by design, and so that's... That's what we have to get to the bottom of. Listen, you take care of yourself and get that heel fixed. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. All right, Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you and delighted to be. And one of my favorite guests always is Gordon Chang. And it's always nice to see him in person because uh, we usually do this stuff by phone, but Gordon and his wife Lydia have become friends through the years, and it's just a pleasure, Gordon, to have you. And it's, I always love to see you on television. You just offer so much knowledge about what's going on in China. And uh, I told you last time we, when we corresponded this past week that I saw you do, with, I think, Maria. I think it was with Maria Bartiroma. And I, I've never seen you quite... You're always down, because the news about China is always bad. But I've never seen you quite so down, I didn't think. Uh, do you think there's... Has anything changed? Is it worse? Has it taken a turn that makes you consternate about it more? At this moment, I've, I've never really been more worried about China than I have. And the reason is, 
I think that there are things going on in Beijing which I don't understand, but they're, they're, these are the types of things that don't happen in the absence of extreme turmoil. And if you have turmoil at the top of the Communist Party, it's going to be reflective of what the way they treat the United States, the way they treat their neighbors. Their external policies are always um, dominate their are dominated by Communist Party politics. So I'm worried. Yes, I am too. I thought that that recent speech by by uh, uh, Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, Xi, Xi Jinping, was pretty frightening. I mean, they they usually are much more careful. Uh, than he was in that speech. How did you respond to that? You're absolutely right about that. So, for instance, there's two passages from that speech which are particularly worrying. First one was the one that people have talked about, where Xi Jinping said that he's going to crack heads and spill blood if they stand in the way of China's ambitions. And China is trying to take territory from its neighbors, from India in the south to South Korea in the north. So, really, this is a, this is a a warning that they're going to go to war. But the other thing that he said was, the Chinese people, backed up by the Communist Party, are good at taking down the old world and building a new one. And that's a reference to Xi Jinping believing that he's the world's only legitimate ruler, that everyone in the world owes subservience to China, because he's been talking about this using other language, but um, nonetheless making clear references. To what's called the mandate of heaven over Tianxia, or all under heaven, and that meant for two millennia, Chinese rulers believed that they were the world's only legitimate sovereigns. And Xi Jinping is bringing back that language in those phrases in that speech he had on the twenty on the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party. You know, it's it's ironic to me because、um, I've always assumed that the Chinese Communist Party was as atheistic. As the Russian Communist Party, and to, to just invoke heaven—I mean, even—it、uh, just seems odd to me. How do how do you reconcile that? That's not the Christian heaven. No, no, I'm sure.、Yeah. But I mean, even just the concept of eternity—it's—it's it's the concept of yeah, it's the concept of eternity. Remember, they're communists, so there's two things that are going on here. First of all, communists believe that their movement should、uh, take over the world; that there should be no capitalists, there should be no governments. This is a worldwide movement. But also, when you layer that on to Chinese、um, thought about being the world's only legitimate sovereigns. Then that gets dangerous, especially now. The Chinese officials are talking not only about the whole world being really part of the People's Republic of China; they're talking about the Moon and Mars should be considered sovereign Chinese territory, and that really means you're talking about the world's most ambitious rulers. You know, Bill Gertz has been writing about this for years. I think we've had this discussion, but Bill used to be my guest often in, in Chicago, and he would talk about how the Chinese military. Had plans to dominate, and at the time, we were just doing great with China. You know, this was like the late '90s, and trade was buzzing, and everything. Every, every, it was all. It was a happy time, and so it was. I heard him, and I believed him, but it was hard to. It was hard to reconcile what we saw in the headlines and what he was saying, and what the military was publishing about their plans. But now,、uh, what, what's changed? Why? Why suddenly, this shift? Because China was doing. Well, economically, working with the world in in a free trade kind of, then they started stealing, you know, intellectual property. Were they just discontent with their good fortune? 
Well, there's a number of things that occur, um, and you can see this in the way the Communist Party governance has evolved. That was the time you're, ta- you're referring to the 90s, where you had Deng Xiaoping, who was essentially the successor to Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was the founder of the People's Republic. Deng um, uh, was his successor, and, and really changed Chinese governance to make it more reasonable. Under Mao was one man, one rule, uh, one man rule, and it was crazy. I mean, he um, engaged in the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward. These are the most abnormal times in human history, not just Chinese history, but human history. Well, Deng Xiaoping dialed that back and, and sort of made things more understandable, more, more normal. But Xi Jinping, the current ruler, is a devotee of Mao Zedong, and he's taking China back to totalitarianism. He's taking China back to state-dominated economy. He's not all the way there yet, um, but he's pushing China in that direction. And that really means that China is becoming crazy again. And that's why um, right now it's more understandable in, in the sense that Gertz was right all along, where it didn't, you know, might not have looked that way in the 1990s. So there's kind of a debate, although I think it's becoming less of a debate, that what's happening here culturally, in terms of social media, in terms of uh, the ability, the freedom to think, your own thoughts, that that is just a lockstep with the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Uh, Because some people thought, would compare it to Nazi Germany. I mean, there are similarities, and to the Russians and all of that. But really, in your own your own analysis, is this the Chinese Cultural Revolution Americanized? We're seeing parallels, mm-hmm. and, and this is really frightening because of this political correctness, which has gone wild. And you can see that among many kids um, in younger generations, they don't have any appreciation of the First Amendment. They have no appreciation of the Constitution those things that made America great. Um, and yes, um, there are very much, you know, this tear down the old world, which is part of what Xi Jinping talked about on the 100th anniversary, but it's also what Mao talked about in terms of destroying the old China. So it is very much in line with that thinking. So the shocking thing is, of course, that Americans are so willing to comply. I mean, we, we've, we could talk a great deal about, I've talked a lot, obviously, about what's happened to public schools and uh, the infiltration of communism really in the public schools for since the 70s. I mean, I had a front row seat to all of that. So it's been a long, but I don't know if the Chinese had anything to do with that. That was more like the, I think, that I think was more like the Russian communist influence at the time. But they're, they're cousins, you know, so I guess the Russian well, implementation has helped the Chinese take over. Well, right now you have the Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is actually um, pushing narratives of racial divide in the United States. They're trying to divide us. They're trying to, and then they've actually, I think, um, clearly fomenting revolution in the U.S. So, for instance, um, and this is just an example, of, um, it's, it's out in the open. On October 18th of last year, um, the Twitter account of the European Bureau Chief of China Daily, which is a Communist Party publication, Chen Weiwa, actually issued a tweet saying that he hoped that more Americans would be throwing petrol bombs on our streets. Now, that's an act of war. Um, That's more than just subversion. And indeed, that's a violation of federal law. You know, the violent overthrow of the United States. And and yet Chen was not (laughs) deplatformed. 
No. Well, uh, we've got companies like Nike and we all of these, uh, the social, how is it that the social media companies became so sold out to China, Gordon? Because how, how is it possible that they can make so much more, they're making more money? Uh, the, the Chinese people are, my impression, is that by and large there may be a billion people, but they're not wealthy, they're not all wealthy people. How, how is that making more money for these social media companies to make them willing to do whatever China wants in order to do business in China? I don't get that. I don't get it either. There's two explanations. Um, one of them is that they want to do business in China. So they are willing, um, and this is not a question of ideology, it's just a question of money. And they believe that if they say nice things and do things which will um, undermine the U.S., that uh, that'll get them into China. And so that's, that's part of it. Also because, remember, China's more coercive. China's extremely coercive. So they react to, to pressure. And we're open democracy. We don't, um, we don't do those things to media companies. We have a First Amendment. So, you know, the, the absence of coercion on the part of the United States means that these companies react to what Beijing is doing. So in China, or I guess Hong Kong, the last free publication has been shut down, I believe, or rated rated and shut down Apple? Apple Daily um, was the main newspaper in Hong Kong and certainly was the main pro-democracy newspaper. It ceased publication about three weeks ago because although it was extremely profitable and had enough money, that money was frozen pursuant to the national security law, which was imposed by on Hong Kong by Beijing on June 30 of last year. And so there, there are some websites around, um, but everyone's been intimidated. And so uh, it has really been, um, Hong Kong is becoming very much like mainland China. So the students, the students, uh, they've disappeared. I think some have been sent back to mainland China, incarcerated. What do you know about specifics on that? Well, there, there have been detentions under the national security law, which, which really permit China to do anything it wants. So a lot of people right now are in jail even pending trial, um, and they're denied bail. Um, there are reports, unconfirmed, that uh, people have been sent to black jails. Um, now, what does that mean? That means into facilities that uh, we don't really know very much about. Some people believe that they've been transported across the border into mainland China. That is unconfirmed. Um, but uh, people have disappeared. There was, a, at the subway stop that I used to take when we were in Hong Kong, Prince Edward, has actually become a shrine because um, people believe that in 2019, in August or July 31st of 2019, three students who were protesting just disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. And so that subway stop has been, has been um, covered with flowers, with testimonials and, and things. And it has really been, um, it's been so sad to watch this. Is it true that expats, I know there's still a lot of uh, people from other countries living in Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong has been the financial center for so long, it, it can't, see there's two questions in my head. Hong Kong's this financial center, which is just a powerhouse. And so what are the Chinese going to do with that? And secondly, um, 
how are expats being left alone in Hong Kong? Can they exist in that, that totalitarian environment where people are being arrested? And how do, how's that working? Yeah, those two questions really go to the, to the issue of whether Hong Kong will remain an international financial center. And I think the answer is no. And the reason is China's trying to um, censor political information, but they will not be able to resist the uh, temptation to also start censoring business information. Once they start censoring business information, then you're going to see the big banks and financial institutions and others really drastically scale back their operations and even leave. And even the big social media companies that we're just talking about could very well leave. Matter of fact, they have actually threatened to leave if, if Hong Kong imposes a new privacy law, um, which is draconian in the least. So um, the issue will be, you know, Hong Kong will always be a financial center like Shenzhen or Shanghai, but whether it'll be a financial center for activities other than China, in other words, be an international financial center, I really don't think so because um, China, once it started to get its claws into it, closing Apple Daily, for instance, um, I think will just continue to try to censor information and people will realize they can no longer conduct finan international financial transactions there. <laughs> this is my innocence. What little tiny innocence I have left here it is. Has anyone tried to sit down with the social media CEOs or the heads of these big giant corporations like Nike? and tell, give them a chart of what China is doing and what this is going to mean to them and their children. They live here too, for heaven's sake. They're not going to be absent of the consequences of what they're doing. Has anyone tried to approach them in that way? I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think it really would matter because what they're looking at is really short term. And they reacting to pressure from China. Um, they may be reacting to their own um, ideological bent. I don't know, but the point is, um, they think that they can make money in China, and so therefore they're going to do that. You know, Nike is a perfect example. It lectures the American people on all sorts of things, but for many years was using um, racial uh, minorities as slaves in a factory. This was in Qingdao, um, in the northeastern part of the country, where Uyghurs had been transported to. Um, the factory looked like a prison. And um, although it was technically run by a Nike subcontractor, a South Korean company, this subcontractor had a long-term relationship with Nike. Nike knows or should know what goes on in all the factories which produce its goods, um, but certainly one where it's had this long-term relationship. So there's no excuse, no excuses to be made. Yeah. Well. Gordon, um, thank you, and we'll talk again later on my phone uh, in more detail about China, but thank you for being that watchman on the wall, and I know Lydia grieves over Hong Kong, that's her home, that's her home, so it's a sad thing for you guys, and uh, I always appreciate your willingness to hang in there and talk about it and inform us, so thank you. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Sandy, for this opportunity. Okay. Sandy Rios, in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you. Well, I can't think of anyone, any politician that I've watched through probably the last, I don't know, 15 years. I don't know, maybe 20 years 
uh, who smiles his way through <laughs> the most adversity, and that's Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin. Who can remember? Who can forget? Well, they have forgotten because have, yeah. so many things have happened. How they came after you and how you were hated at, because you uh, you made the teachers' unions so angry and they took over your building and urinated in your hallways yeah. and defic- was just bang drums for days. They occupied, in fact, I always say the Occupy movement did not start on uh, Wall Street. It started on my street in Madison, it, it, Wisconsin. Really, 100,000 people took over our capital. I'm curious, did anybody, did anybody ever go to jail for that? Were, was there any retribution for any of that? There were a handful, but, but not most. Uh, certainly the damage that was done, uh, they didn't. And uh, there were a few people uh, that, that did, and a few people that issued death threats where they could follow up on it. But but nothing compared to all the talk you see in the last six months across the country. And remember, this, again, wasn't a couple hours. This was a Days. number of weeks. It was almost, uh, by the time between the time I introduced uh, the legislation and the time I signed it, it was almost a month. It was disgusting. It was yeah. disgusting display. The good news is we prevailed, and we yeah. not only prevailed with the, the policy, but they tried to, you know, the ultimate, we talk here at CPAC about uh, cancel culture, yeah. Our recalls the ultimate uh, cancel culture. They tried to get rid of me, literally. Yes. And we ended up winning with more votes and a higher percentage mm-hmm. of vote than we did the first time. That was amazing. Maybe that's why you were such a happy warrior. But I, I know why you're a happy warrior, because I know that you're a strong Christian. Absolutely. People always used to ask in the thick yeah. of those awful, awful things uh, that were happening to me and my family and our supporters. Mm-hmm. I said, how do you deal with it? I said, no, you start and end your day the same way, on your knees, and that's the rest right. works itself that's out. That's right. That's right. You don't. And you don't fear what man can do, you fear God. Yeah, so, you know, I find, well, I wasn't going to go here, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> because why wouldn't we go here? I find, uh, you know, I still am in D.C. working with all kinds of people. And I find God has his people just all over the place. Just all over the place. And using, uh, and they don't lead with their faith, mm-hmm. so people don't know that. Uh, but they, uh, But God is empowering his people and making his presence known. Even in Congress, I think so. Well, I think all over. People always ask, and it, this is true not only for people in office. I even tell young people I talk to, um, you know, get out of your bubble, get out of your mm-hmm. comfort zone, and you'll be amazed. You'll find people. I used to call them, uh, you know, God's angels he'd send because I'd go out around the state, get out of the nonsense that was happening, literally in my case, the state capitol. Yeah. And I, you know, it could be at a factory or a big old guy with grease all over him. I thought was going to, you know, poke his <laughs> finger in my chest, and he did, and I thought, oh, here it comes. He's like, I just want you to know, Governor, me and my family pray for her. On the TV set of a, of a show, morning show in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, the woman who's leaning down to put my mic in quick, quickly, uh, just kind of quietly whispers uh, that she and her daughters every night get on their knees and say prayers for me and my family. It, it's just, I said, those are the things that if you're open to God's calling and, and you get out and you get away from your troubles and you go out and just listen to where God's sending you, wherever it might be in life, right. um, God will take care. Do you have you ever entertained running for governor again? It must kill you to watch what's happening in Wisconsin. Yeah, although the good news is, thank goodness, there's a really great legislative majority there. So the lawmakers have been more than a goalie; they've really been quite aggressive. Um, at Young America's Foundation, where I'm at now, I gave them uh, at least four years. I said I'd go through 2025. The woman who was a fabulous lieutenant governor, Rebecca Clayfish, strong conservative, yes. great conservative. I've interviewed Rebecca. Yes, yeah, I know Becky's her. the best. <laughs> Uh, she's going to run. I think she'd be fabulous both as a candidate and more as a governor. She'll be her own person and take the states to even higher levels. But running for office, I, I joke about this, but but it's true. You know, Joe Biden is. A, I'm a quarter century younger than Joe Biden. 
So I got plenty so you of could, time. You could still do it, couldn't yeah, you? I got room for anything. <laughs> could Who knows? you hurry, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a mess we're in. Uh, let's talk about Young America's Foundation. Yeah. So just for tell me, tell me, you're the new the new president. So where are you going to take this group and? Who are they, these young people? Yeah, I like to say YAF, YF.org, if people are interested, YF.org. Is that where you got your start? Uh, I was that the a, organization? Not the organization, although my kids were involved in college. I, I was involved with Students for Life. So students I actually served on yeah, their board. you got a good memory, yeah. yeah. Students for Life. And mm-hmm. so very parallel, we do some things with the gang for Students for Life, as well as college Republicans mm-hmm. and others. But it started at William F. Buckley's home, uh, September 11, 1960. No kidding. Uh, in Sharon, Connecticut. And then two years later, Ronald Reagan joined the board. And uh, they supported uh, uh, Barry Goldwater. And then for years, Reagan was involved. In fact, they even sponsored his radio show uh, between the time he was governor and president. It's why it's fitting that the YF now owns and operates the Reagan Ranch out in Santa Barbara. I was their guest. They brought me out uh, several years ago, and I did my show there. Yeah. and Got to see where his feet, his big, long legs stuck over his bed, and he had like a little a little a Small little bed. It's just bed. amazing how humbly he lived. Oh, that's the one thing the I, kids kids and supporters <laughs> like when they go there. Yeah, he, he was the uh, same generation as my grandparents. We're farmers about an hour north of him in Dixon. And he would take the only thing left, the Corneliuses had left, when, when he and the first lady of California, Nancy Reagan, had bought the place, the ranch, were these two twin beds, metal frames. <laughs> and so what did he do? He wasn't going to throw it away because being a, you know, growing up in the Great Depression, you threw nothing away. Right. My grandparents were just like that. That's right. My they zip tie their, their, uh, the beds together, throw the queen-size mattress mm-hmm. on top. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. the bed on his side was not long enough, so there's a little wood bench yeah, that's yeah, still yeah, exactly. there. Like he's sleeping in it today. Exactly. And the kids love it. The students yeah. love it because it's yeah. authentic. It's real. They realize this wasn't some guy performing. Mm-hmm. This is who he was. Yeah, exactly. And and that's people sometimes say to me, you know, you guys are so connected to Reagan. Is that looking backwards? I said, no, it's looking forward. We're not just about nostalgia. We're about saying, look at this, not only the ideas, which are very similar to the things that Donald Trump did a fabulous job of, of promoting during his four years, particularly the first two years working with the Congress. But, but what we love with Reagan is you take those ideas and then here's a great role model of, of how to push back but be a happy warrior. You know, be aspirational. Make the case why freedom and opportunity are so much better than socialism and communism. I have to ask you, you know, you, you were in the race for president when President Trump was yeah. in. That was, that was quite the, that was a stellar lineup, I have to oh, say. Yeah. That was a stellar lineup. But did you ever think in a million years that Donald Trump would become the president that he became? No. In fact, early on... Uh, so I could see where things were going after I was in for a while, and I joke I got out before I got a nickname, which is true. Uh, <laughs> but I eventually, in Wisconsin's primary, endorsed uh, Ted Cruz because yeah. ideologically, Ted and I are probably more aligned to help yes. them out. Yeah, he was and, my man, too. And people say, you know, and, and whenever he would, in the last five-plus years, whenever he would say or tweet something, maybe it's a little different than what I'd say, my response, particularly if I was on, you know, CNN or ABC or NBC or someplace like that, was they tried to nail me on it. I said, well, he wasn't my first choice. I was my first choice. <laughs> and, of course, everybody laughs at that a little bit. But I'd say, but I looked at him and I looked at Italy and now I looked at him and Biden for sure. But, but I, I, I got to say, I never dreamed. Uh, eventually, I supported him, you know, to become the nominee. But I never dreamed. Part of the reason why I was comfortable with that was his list of judges and justices. Uh, and putting Mike Pence on, I thought, was a solid pick because we knew Mike is a, a rock-solid conservative governor in the House. But he widely exceeded my expectations. 
he did much more to push the conservative movement than I ever dreamed. And I would argue even probably more than my hero, Ronald Reagan, yes, because he had a, you know, the House and the Senate. Reagan never had both. But but uh, I give him props. Well, I do, too. I do, too. I just think, well, you know, most people do grow in that job. Yeah. You think of George W. Bush also. Yeah. And so I just think we saw, even as it, from the time he started his candidacy, he was pretty bombastic. Mm-hmm. And to the end of it, he he grew in that, and yet and yet it was it wasn't fake. No, I mean, he he really did. I we saw we got we actually pulled back the layers and we found out that this was a real. And he was really moved. I I've talked yes. to him a number of times because I, I I knew the vice president from being a governor before as well, but I was surprised talking to the president how it wasn't necessarily something he brought with him initially, but how moved he was by faith leaders around him, and and how praying for him and supporting yes. him really had a I, I could physically sometimes even see the difference it made to him and how again surprisingly not what you'd expect for someone who hadn't had a career of being you know a, a full spectrum conservative he was solid I mean you look at the things he did on defunding Planned Parenthood some of the executive orders the other actions he pushed and of course obviously the judicial picks he put up as nominees fabulous conservative wish list and the the other ironic thing is that he came from Again, I hate this word, privilege, because now we can't say that word anymore without it being completely polluted and twisted. Uh, but he did come from money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was raised with money. He had, he's a good-looking guy. He was talented. He was athletic. Uh, he had everything. He had beautiful women, and yet he relates to the people. He cares about the worker. He cares about the auto guys. He, he cares about, he gets down in the trenches and relates. How does that happen? How does that happen, Scott? But you know, the interesting thing, I remember listening very intently. I, I spoke in the, at Cleveland at the convention the next night, uh, Vice President Pence spoke, and then after that it was the final night, of course, was, was then candidate Donald Trump. And I listened to his daughter, Ivanka, in particular talk before he gave that speech, and I was really taken by her talking about how her father and from her grandfather's time in the, in the real estate business, that when he would go to sites to look at developments, he didn't go talk to the managers. He went to talk to the workers because he believed, and this makes sense, he believed that they knew if the costs were right, if they were doing it right, and he wanted to hear firsthand from them, you know, you think, that are they doing this right? Is this working? And, um, and they respected that, and they gave him his feedback, and sometimes he made changes off of that. I think that's that to me makes sense even though it's not a political instinct it's something then he carried as as president you know he'd want to go talk not just to senior advisors but but go out and talk to people and say well how i know a number of times when he came to visit wisconsin he'd want to talk to the the guys on the line the people building something talk to farmers we had some issues he was very very i think attentive is a great word i agree and it's just it's really he was he is a one-of-a-kind person no question about it all right, so this is a tough question because this is the big lie. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to say. Uh, the the election. Uh, you you guys had such tremendous problems in Wisconsin. Do you think you'll ever get to reconcile that? I do. Uh, I, I think the it's going to take a number of things. The interesting thing is the laws themselves are actually pretty good. It's about enforcement. So, for example, a decade ago, I, I signed, I pushed it as a lawmaker a decade before that, but I signed photo identification uh, law to vote. So very strict, very clear photo ID law. I think law. I remember that. I'm very pleased to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have other uh, voter integrity issues that have been there. Uh, the problem with a number of the issues that came up was not the law. It was enforcement. 
the two biggest counties. So, for example, uh, in Milwaukee and Dane County, which are the two biggest, uh, where the two biggest cities are at, uh, the clerks there just handed out absentee ballots at, at events out at public parks. Even the law says you have to ask for an absentee ballot, right? Elections officials there and elsewhere told people that if someone had uh, signed their name on an absentee ballot and, and printed their name but had not filled in their address, and they could do that from that's not what the law says it's very clear that it doesn't say it so it's one of those where and unfortunately those two counties have prosecutors district attorneys who are both fairly liberal democrat so i think going forward in wisconsin probably in other states too they're going to look at not only what the laws but who's going to enforce those laws and maybe it has to be at the state level uh where it comes out of either the attorney general's office the elections commissioner some mechanism by which you don't just write it off because you know some partisan prosecutor doesn't want to take action when there's real issues. Yeah, I, I, I want to repeat what I've said several times today in your absence, and that is that uh, it, it does not help our mental health when we let things slide. Murderers have to be brought to justice. People who steal uh, need to be brought to justice. It's And even in our personal lives, we have to be held to account for what we do. And a nation cannot look the other way when this kind of a a stealing has taken well, and there's place. got to be there's got to be transparency as well. That's right. You know, the problem I saw not only in Wisconsin, but was in in places like Detroit and Philadelphia, where they were, you know, they had people coming in uh, uh, looking at the ballots, and and then they would put up, you know, plywood or uh, cardboard or yes. things like that, so people couldn't see. Said, so just logically, no matter who you are, if you're a Democrat or Republican, who in the world would do that? I I'd want in a race like that where we knew how tight it was. I'd want everybody to see what I was doing because for legitimacy requires transparency. No matter who you are, whether whether you win or lose, if people feel like there's no transparency, you're going to be almost impossible to have any kind of integrity. I'm sorry, so we got to fix this. Yeah. So, uh, go- former Governor Scott Walker, it's always a pleasure. You. So you guys, Wisconsin is an unusual state, and uh, I have great affection for Wisconsin because, uh, you know, Chicago is my hometown, but my husband's dad's from Fond du Lac, and we have lots of friends in Wisconsin, and you guys have some great people, some great fighters, and so I I hope that you find yourself in the the big arena again because we we need some happy warriors right now. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Good to be with you. All right, Sandy Brios in the morning on AFR Talk.